0: Well, we're delighted to have you with us as we continue our study of Paul's epistle to the Philippians. So if you have your Bibles and you haven't done so, please open them up to Philippians chapter 2. And um, we're going to continue studying this very important section of Philippians, which as we will see is packed full of great teaching, great doctrine, and wonderful practical advice for our lives as well. But let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer. Well, again, we are returning to Philippians chapter 2, to this section, verses 1 through 11. So we're going to go ahead and read these verses again. We've already started to look at them, but I want to go back and look at some other things that this great section of Philippians is teaching us. As I said, it's packed full of great teaching and great doctrine. So Paul is writing to the Philippians, and he said, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort... So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This section of Philippians is commonly referred to by theologians as the great hymn of kenosis. Uh, The Greek word means self-emptying. And it's obvious why it's called the hymn of kenosis then. It's because we're told that Jesus made himself nothing. That is to say, some translations put it this way, he emptied himself. Though he was in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be held on to or grasped, but instead he emptied himself. And that sets us an example as to how we are to live. We are to empty ourselves for the sake of others. It's an extraordinary thing that Christ should do this. But this great hymn of kenosis not only tells us that Christ was willing to empty himself, but it really presents us with what I would call a crash course in Christian theology. Theology 101, if you will. Many of the most significant Christian doctrines are taught, really, in the span of just these five verses, 6 through 11. And it's some of those Christian doctrines that I want us to take a look at today. Um, you can get an entire tome, a huge volume on Christian doctrine and theology, and it's really going to be a little more than an exposition of exactly what Paul is saying here in verses 6 through 11. So this is really a very important section. I would go so far as to say that if you understand what Paul is saying in verses 6 through 11, there is a sense in which you have grasped the nettle of Christianity. You, you've come to an understanding of what the Christian faith is all about. So what are some of these doctrines that Paul teaches? Well, the first doctrine that Paul teaches, and it's there in verse 6, is the divinity of Christ. The idea that Jesus Christ is, in fact, very God of very God, begotten, not made. Exactly what we say every Sunday when we stand immediately following the sermon and profess our faith in the words of the creed. Whether that be the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, one of the things that we are professing is a belief in the divinity of Christ. Now, Paul uses two Greek words here, and you don't have to know the Greek in order to understand what Paul is teaching, but it does add, I think, an added level of understanding. So what does Paul say? He uses two Greek words here. One is the word morph. Morph. Which is translated here as form, who though he was in the form of God. Now, it's from this word that we get our term morphology. And when I'm referring to morphology, I'm not talking about language, I'm really talking about biology. Morphology is that aspect of biology that deals with living organisms and their relationship to others. That's what morphology is. And that is the word that Paul uses here. It's Paul's way of saying that Jesus was morph in the form of God. He was both inwardly and outwardly, if you will, God, divine. But what is interesting is that Paul could have stopped right there, and he doesn't. He uses another Greek word that, as I said, adds a level of understanding, Some might say a level of complexity, but really a level of understanding. He not only says that Jesus Christ is morph, inwardly and outwardly God, but then he uses this word, isos. It's translated in that phrase, did not count equality with God. So he's saying he was in the very form of God, but he's also equal with God. Now, the word isos is the word from which we get the term isomer. Now, those of you who remember chemistry will recall that an isomer is a molecule or two molecules that have the same chemical compound and weight, but a different structure. In other words, they're made up of the same thing, but they are built or they are structured in a different way. So here, for those of you who like a picture, is a picture of two isomers. These are two sugar molecules. You're familiar with both of them. They're two different types of sugar, glucose and fructose. You'll notice when you look at them, and you don't have to be a chemistry major to get this, but you'll notice they are made up of precisely the same material. And they have the same chemical weight, but they are structured differently. And so they are not exactly alike, and yet they are equal. It is interesting that Paul uses those two words, morph and isos, to describe Jesus Christ in terms of his relationship with the Godhead. What Paul is saying is that Jesus Christ is one with the Father. He is as much God as the Father is God. And yet, though he is equal with God, the Father, he is not the same as God the Father. Now, this is very deep stuff. I recognize that. But sometimes I think even as Christians, we get into our mind that there's a hierarchy in the Godhead, that there is the Father at the top, then there's the Son, and the Holy Spirit is somehow at the bottom. And what we have to remember is that all three persons of the Trinity are equal. Jesus Christ is God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Here's how one of the other creeds of the church—now, we rarely use this creed— But you'll find that in the back of the Book of Common Prayer, it's on page 864, sometimes it is the creed used on Trinity Sunday. It's called the Creed of St. Athanasius. And this particular creed focuses not on every aspect of the Lord's life and ministry, but specifically on the doctrine of the Trinity. And this is what the creed says. Now, you may find it somewhat redundant, but what the creed is designed to teach Is the equality of the three persons of the Trinity and their full divinity. So listen to what it says. And the Catholic faith is this. Now, Catholic here means the faith universal, the church universal. It's not referring to the Roman church. And the Catholic faith is this that we worship one God. In other words, Christians are not polytheistic, we're monotheistic. We worship one God, but one God in Trinity. And Trinity. In unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. So it's one God, but there are three distinct persons. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Ghost is all one. The glory is equal, the majesty co eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son. And such is the Holy Ghost. The Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, and the Holy Ghost is uncreated. The Father is incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, the Holy Ghost is incomprehensible. The Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, the Holy Ghost is eternal, and yet they are not three eternals, but one eternal. And also, there are not three incomprehensibles, nor three uncreated, but one uncreated and one incomprehensible. So likewise, the Father is almighty. The Son is Almighty, the Holy Ghost is Almighty, and yet there are not three Almighties, but one Almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Ghost is God, and yet there are not three gods, but one God. So likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son, Lord, the Holy Ghost, Lord, and yet there are not three lords, but one Lord. Now, the, t- the creed goes on like that for some time, but you get the idea What the Creed of Athanasius is saying is that all three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, while they are distinct, while they are unique, they are nevertheless co-equal, co-eternal, and deserving of worship, praise, and adoration. Well, that is exactly what Paul is saying about Jesus Christ. Now, I understand that this is a very high form of math. Thomas Jefferson once said that Christianity would be much better off if it would get rid of this troublesome arithmetic that 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 1. But nevertheless, this is the great mystery. And furthermore, I ask you the question, who could have made this up? This has to be a divine revelation because no one would think up the doctrine of the Trinity that there be three persons but one Godhead, equal in unity and yet not the same. So that is exactly what Paul is teaching us here when he speaks of Jesus Christ. In order to understand this idea of kenosis, the idea that Christ emptied himself, Paul wants us to understand, and first and foremost, that Jesus Christ, that one who walked this earth, that one who became wearied on the roads in Palestine, that one who became hungry, that one who became frustrated, that one who became anxious at the time of his passion, that Jesus Christ was, in fact, equal with the Father, the one by whom all things were made. Now, this is not the only place where this is being taught. We find this very same idea of the divinity of Christ being taught elsewhere, in the creeds, as I said, but also in the first chapter of John's gospel. So I want you to keep your finger there in Philippians. I want you to turn to John for just a moment. John chapter 1, you're no doubt familiar with this famous introduction to the fourth gospel. It's called the prolegomena or the prologue to John's gospel, and it is the highest theology that you find in the New Testament. So John chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. And here's what the apostle says. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made, In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Go down to verse 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. of truth. Now, what I want you to notice is that the term that John uses there in verse 1 and then returns to in verse 14, the term word, you'll see it's capitalized. The Greek term is logos, and it was a Greek philosophical term. It was originally coined by a man by the name of Heraclides, and Heraclides was the man who taught that the world was in a constant state of change. The world was in a constant state of flux. He said nothing stays the same. The image that he used was of a river. He said if you ever step into a river, step out of the river, and then back into it again, it's not the same river. It's in a constant state of change. Now we know this to be true from science, that the world is in a constant state of flux, a constant state of change. Well, one of the disciples of Heraclitus came up to him and asked, well, if that is true, if the world is always changing, it's in a constant state of flux, why is there not more chaos? There is change, but it appears to be an ordered change. What accounts for that? And Heraclitus said, there is a logos. There is a word that governs the universe. Now what John does in the fourth gospel is he takes that Greek philosophical idea and he says that that word which holds all things together, that word by whom all things were made, that is God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, any good Jew would have agreed with this. By the first century, there was a great deal of Greek philosophy that was beginning to make its way into Jewish thought. This is particularly true in the second century, but there were nonconformist communities of Jews, particularly down by the Dead Sea, what is known as the Essene community, who incorporated some of this Greek philo- philosophy into its theology. And so any good Jew would have said, yeah, that's right. We, we, We can buy into that, that there is a word that governs all the change. And we know who that or what that word is. That word is, in fact, God Almighty. But then John says something that was earth shattering. And he says, and that word, verse 14, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. So John makes the extraordinary claim that the one who created all things, who called the universe into existence by the sheer power of his word, the one who said, let there be light, the one who brought order out of chaos That one, at some point in history, the creator of everything, entered his creation and took on flesh. Now, that is an extraordinary claim, and yet that is exactly what John claims, and John is not alone in this. It's interesting. Many scholars argued for a greater portion of the 20th century that the gospel of John was so unique in this claim so high in terms of its theology and its Christology that it must not be a first-century document. And this must have been something that came much later, perhaps well into the second century, because you have all of this Greek Hellenism, all of this Greek philosophical thought being incorporated. But that has now changed. Many scholars are actually arguing that John is not only a first century document, some have even gone so far as to suggest that it may be the earliest of the Gospels. And this just goes to show you how quickly things can change, oftentimes in academic pursuits. You see, what happened was that in the 1940s, 1946, 1947, there was the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Many of you are perhaps familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls. There was a small shepherd boy down in the south of what is now modern-day Israel. He was down near the Dead Sea in an area that had been settled by a a community of nonconformist Jews. They were called, as I said, the Essenes. And uh, like little boys do, he was throwing stones. And he threw some stones into a cave. Caves are not uncommon in that portion of the country. And he heard the shattering of pottery something that sounded like the breaking of glass. He went up in there and he found a whole series of large clay jars which contained ancient scrolls, many of them holding some of the earliest copies of the Old Testament scriptures that we have today. In fact, just a few months ago, they discovered another cave with some more of these scrolls in them. So there are still things down there in that portion of Israel, even today, down in the Judean wilderness. But what is interesting is that they discovered that this whole community of nonconformist Jews that existed in the first century, some scholars suggest that John the Baptist may have been a member of this community, a sort of Jewish monastic community in the first century. What is interesting is that here was this whole community of monastic nonconformist Jews living just to the south of Jerusalem in the first century who were employing all of this Greek philosophical language. And it changed completely the attitude and the understanding that scholars had in regard to the gospel of John. But what I want you to notice is that John is not the only one who makes this extraordinary claim that the word, the one by whom all things were made at one point in history, took on human flesh. Paul is saying precisely the same thing here in Philippians. And we know that the writings of Paul are the earliest Christian documents that we have. So Paul is making the same claim as John that Jesus Christ was very God, a very God, in the form of God, outwardly and inwardly, equal with the Father. And yet he did what? Verse 7, he made himself nothing. And he took the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of men. Back in um, the 1980s, there was a children's book that came out written by uh, a British author. And the book was entitled Indian in the Cupboard. And I read it to my boys and they absolutely loved it. And it is the story of a little boy who has little plastic figurines, cowboys and Indians. And he is given a cupboard for his birthday by a family member. He's not happy with this little cupboard, but it's a little place where he can keep his toys. But what he discovers is that when he puts the plastic figure into the cupboard, turns the lock, and reopens it, that which was plastic takes on life. And so he discovers that he can put his toys into this magic cupboard, turn the lock, reopen it, and it is alive. Well, there is a sense in which Jesus Christ became the real Indian in the cupboard. Except that he was alive, but the point is that he took on our flesh. He was was changed. He was God. He was the one by whom all things were made, equal with the Father, there in creation. That word, and yet he took on human flesh. Here's how C.S. Lewis described it in his book, Mere Christianity. It's chapter 5, beginning on page 179, and this is what Lewis says. He said, did you ever think when you were a child what fun it would be if your toys could come to life? Well, suppose you could really have brought them to life. Imagine turning a tin soldier into a real little man. It would involve turning the tin into flesh. And suppose the tin soldier did not like it. He is not interested in flesh. All he sees is the tin is being spoiled. He thinks you are killing him. He will do everything he can to prevent you. He will not be made into a man if he can help it. What would you have done about that tin soldier? I do not know. But what God did about us was this. The second person in God, the son, became human himself was born into the world as an actual man, a real man, of particular height with a hair of a particular color, speaking a particular language, weighing so many stone. The eternal being who knows everything and who created the whole universe became not only a man, but before that, a baby. And before that, a fetus inside a woman's body. If you want to get the hang of it, think how you would like to become a slug or a crab. That's the picture you see. That is what God has done. That is what Paul is saying. Now, you and I look at each other, and we have a tendency to think, in comparison to the rest of the animal world, my goodness, human beings are at the top. But Lewis captures what God had done. God is the creator. You and I are nothing by comparison. And yet God, at one point in history, comes down and enters his creation. It would be like us becoming a crab or a slug. He takes on flesh. That's the way John put it in verse 14. And the word became flesh. Now, the Greek word for flesh is a very interesting word. It is the word sarx. Flesh, it's what you and I got up with this morning. It's what we bathed this morning. It's what some of us shaved this morning, flesh. Think about that. It's flesh that gets weary and tired, isn't it? It's flesh that needs that afternoon nap if you're going to make it through the rest of the day. Let's be honest. It's flesh that gets diseased and cancer. It's flesh that ultimately wears out. How many of you have ever noticed that the older you get, the thinner your skin gets? You ever notice that? You bruise easily. It's flesh that wears out. It's flesh that gets sick. It's flesh that dies. And it's flesh that goes down into the grave and decays. Flesh. That's what the creator of the heavens and the earth took on. Flesh. Corruptible, fallen, decaying diseased, dying flesh. That's what we celebrate every Christmas. Not just that a baby was born, but that this baby was born. That God came down, not counting equality with God, a thing to be grasped. Christ took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness, inwardly, outwardly, equal with God, but assuming human flesh. Now, this great doctrine of the incarnation, and that's what the incarnation means. It means to take on flesh, incarnate. How many of you have ever had chili con carne? What is chili con carne? It's chili with the flesh, it's chili with meat. That's what incarnation means. It took on flesh, he took on meat. Now, what does that mean for us? What are the implications of Christ coming down and taking on human flesh? Well, there are any number of implications for you and for me. One of the most important implications is that it means that Christ understands what it is like to be human and to be tempted. And he not only understands it, but what's more, he is capable of helping us in times of temptation. Keep your finger there in Philippians and turn to the right to the epistle to the Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, this is one of those passages that if you're ever going through a difficult time, you ever feel beleaguered or or under the gun or or tempted to do whatever it may be, or just weak, worn out, frustrated, this is one of those passages that you ought to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest. It ought to be highlighted in your Bible. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning at verse 14 Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted just as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because he took on flesh, Jesus has experienced everything you and I have experienced. And not only experienced it, but what's more, he's been tempted, just as we have been tempted. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with the story of Jesus' temptation. You can go back to Matthew chapter 4. We looked at it a long time ago as we were making our way through that first gospel. But if you go back to Matthew chapter 4, let's just take a quick look at the temptation of Jesus, because that temptation came really in three forms. And temptation comes to us in precisely the three forms today. So there is a sense in which Jesus' temptation in the wilderness is an image of the temptations that you and I face on a daily basis. So it's Matthew chapter 4. You know what has happened. Jesus has been baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River, and we're told that immediately he was led into the wilderness by the Spirit, where he was tempted by the devil. And look at verse 2. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, hunger is a physical desire. And the need for food is a physical need. And the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. But Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. What was this temptation? At its ultimate level, what this was, was a temptation. Now, first of all, Jesus knew who he was. He knew his true identity. As a matter of fact, his identity had been revealed not only to him, but to everyone that was present there on the banks of the Jordan River. We're told that when Jesus came up out of the water, what happened? We're told the heavens were opened, the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove, And behold, a voice from heaven came saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So the father gives his imprimatur to the son in the presence of the entire company. But the first thing that the devil says to him is this, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. In other words, prove it. Prove you are who you really say you are. I know you're hungry. I know you're famished out here in the wilderness. There's not much to eat. If you've ever been to the Judean wilderness, and I've been there many times, it is a desolate place. There is nothing out there but scorpions and snakes. Jesus was hungry. What was the devil doing? The devil was encouraging him to place physical needs before spiritual needs. And you know, oftentimes that's a temptation that comes to us, isn't it? We're more concerned with our creature comforts than we are with our spiritual needs. This is one of the reasons why the scripture says, what does it profit a man if you gain the whole world, but you lose your own soul? What happens if you've got all the degrees, you've gone to Harvard or Yale or Dartmouth or wherever it is, you've got a successful career, but in order to get those physical comforts, to get that boat, to live in that neighborhood, to drive that car, you have neglected the greater, deeper, more weighty spiritual matters of the soul. How many of you face that temptation on a daily basis? I know I do. I'd much rather go out to a nice restaurant, and spend the time that I need going to church, whatever it may be. We face that kind of physical temptation to put our physical needs, our creature comforts, before the weightier, more important matters of the soul. But that wasn't the only temptation that Jesus faced. The devil came to him a second time. The devil took him up to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle, And said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. What is this? This was a temptation to presume on God. Go ahead. Let God take care of you. Do what you want, but but God's going to take care of you after all, so throw yourself down. And sometimes we have a tendency to presume on God, don't we? Look how Jesus responds. He said, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. We cannot go and live our own life and expect that God is simply going to clean up our mess after us. And yet that was the temptation that the devil put before Jesus. Live your own life, do your own thing, and don't expect that there'll be any consequences. Throw yourself down and God will bear you up. So, you see this physical temptation. You see this spiritual temptation. You have this vocational temptation. The devil comes a third time and he says, This. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And he said to them, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. The devil had been given all the kingdoms of the earth. The whole world was living and following after him, living for him and following after him. What was this a temptation? This was a temptation to have all of the glory, all of the power, but none of the cross. It's to have the crown without the suffering. And oftentimes there are forms of Christianity that promise that. We call it the prosperity gospel. Follow Jesus Christ and everything's gonna be wonderful. It's gonna be a primrose path. Your life's going to get automatically better. You'll never have any troubles. It's God's will that you be healthy, happy, and strong. Add wealth to that as well. But that's not the way it was for Jesus. Jesus said, "Begone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. You and I are tempted in precisely the same ways that Jesus is tempted. There are physical temptations that come to us, whether that be the desire for food or the desire for creature comforts or the desire for sex, whatever it may be. There are spiritual temptations that come to us. We think that we can presume on God, live a life of sin, do our own thing, but God's going to grate on the curve in the end. Or we think that we can have all of the glory, all of the majesty, the adulation of the crowds without giving up anything For the sake of him who gave up everything for us. We've all been tempted in this way. But the marvelous message of the incarnation is that Jesus Christ, because he has been tempted in precisely the same way and triumphed in the midst of these temptations, is able to help us when we are tempted. There's no temptation that has ever come to you that Jesus Christ has not already faced. And because he understands, he is able to sympathize with us in our weakness. We're not left to our own devices to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. There is one who understands and has compassion and is mighty to save. So that's one of the practical implications of the condescension of Christ, his incarnation, victory in the midst of temptation. Not only that, but Jesus also provides us with an example of how to endure suffering. You know, this life is filled with great joys, great mountaintop experiences, but it's also filled with great sorrow, disappointments, loss, Jesus himself said this. In this world, he said, you will have tribulation. Jesus didn't say, in this world, you may have tribulation. It's likely you'll have tribulation. He was emphatic. He said, you will have it. And anybody that's lived for any length of time knows this is true. But Jesus Christ endured those things. He endured suffering. Have you ever noticed that when we say the Apostles' Creed, that the whole of Jesus' life is summed up in just those words, he suffered? I mean, think about it. Jesus walked on this earth for 33 years. He ministered for three of those years, and yet when we stand and say the Apostles Creed, we say he was born of the Virgin Mary, and we immediately go to what? He suffered under Pontius Pilate. And that's because there is a sense in which the whole of Jesus' life was characterized by suffering by rejection. John's gospel, again, going back to that first chapter, he came to that which was his own, but his own received him not. Suffering is going to be a part of the human condition. Now, it is true that some people suffer more than others, but nobody escapes suffering. And what's good to know is that not even God himself escaped it. Now, he could have, because he was transcendent, because he was wholly other. But because he came down and took on human flesh, he became subject to the same things, the disappointments, the frustrations that you and I experience in this life. And therefore, we can follow his example in the midst of these things. Turn, if you will, to the end of the New Testament, to 1 Peter chapter 2. And listen to what the great apostle has to say about that very subject. And 1 Peter chapter 2, this is what he writes. Chapter 2, beginning at verse 20. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Well, that makes perfect sense but nobody likes to suffer for any reason. So how do we endure? Even if we're suffering for a good cause, how do we endure? Verse 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Listen, when suffering, disappointment, rejection, or persecution come into your life as a result of following Jesus Christ, or even, for just being a part of this broken and fallen world, none of us should be surprised. And yet none of us need despair. So the fact that Christ took on flesh has practical implications in that it promises us that there is victory in the midst of temptation because there was one who was tempted just as we are, yet triumphed over those temptations. It should be an encouragement in the midst of suffering because he understands. We can cast all our cares on him. Why? Because he understands and cares for us. And here's the third practical implication. Christ not only endured temptation, he not only endured suffering, he also endured disappointment. Even if suffering is not part and parcel of your everyday existence, disappointment is. I mean, my goodness, this whole season of COVID, it has been one long season of disappointment. Has it not? Well, Jesus understood what it is to be disappointed. Go back to Matthew chapter 23. Let me show you an example of disappointment in Jesus' life. Matthew chapter 23. This was on that first Palm Sunday. Jesus was making his way toward the city of Jerusalem. This is going to be his final journey there to that sacred city. He's going there for one purpose, and that is to offer himself on the cross as the atoning sacrifice for the whole world. He's been going up the length and breadth of Palestine, preaching and teaching, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, and now he has come to set the world free. This is the moment of his exaltation. He's going to be lifted up for all the world to see. And the people are ecstatic. Now, if you read the Gospel of John, you understand why. The stage has been set. Jesus had just moments before or days before raised Lazarus from the dead. It was a very public miracle. He'd set his face toward Jerusalem. The people assumed that the Messiah was going there to liberate them, and indeed he was. And he was going to be lifted up as a king, but not on a throne, but on a cross. They didn't understand that, but nevertheless, there was pandemonium. They were excited about the fact that he was coming. They were tearing the palm branches from the trees, taking off their cloaks, laying it before the donkey as he came into the city, shouting, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we're told that as Jesus is making his way down into the city, being acclaimed as the king, as the Messiah, he stops on a small ledge overlooking the city. And he breaks down and he cries. He weeps. And this is what he says. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? but you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate. He came to that which was his own, but his own received him not. Jesus knew, though the crowds did not, that in just a few hours, those shouts of Hosanna in the highest were going to become cries of crucify him, crucify him, and it broke his heart. We have a wonderful hymn by Walter Russell Bowie that sums up, I think, the feeling of Christ on this occasion, but not just on this occasion, but on every occasion where the people for whom he died turned their backs on him. The hymn goes like this, Lord Christ, when first thou camest to earth, upon a cross they bound thee, and mocked thy saving kingship then with thorns by which they crowned thee. And still our wrongs do weave thee now, new thorns to pierce thy steady brow, and robe of sorrow place round thee. Jesus understood temptation, he knew suffering, and he experienced disappointments, just like us, God Almighty, and therefore he is mighty to save. So this section of Matthew chapter, or excuse me, Philippians chapter 4 teaches us about the divinity of Christ. It teaches us about the condescension of Christ. It teaches us about the centrality of his cross. But he made himself nothing and he took the form of a servant Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, but not just any death, even the death on a cross. The cross, my friends, is the central symbol of the Christian faith. There's hardly a church that you go into, especially as an Anglican or as a Roman Catholic, where there is not a cross or a crucifix at the front It is the symbol of our faith. And Paul makes it very clear that he who was God, who was equal with God, and yet not the same, the Father and the Son are not exactly the same, and yet they are co-equal, co-eternal, that one who called all things into existence took on human flesh, frail, fallen human flesh, and he did it for one purpose, to mount the arms of the cross that he might draw within his saving reach all the peoples of the earth. What does the cross teach us? Why is the cross so central to our faith? Why is it that Paul says, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ? Here's what the cross teaches. You need to understand this. If you're going to understand anything about Christianity, you need to understand the centrality of Jesus' death. The first thing that the cross teaches us is the gravity of human sin. It teaches us that sin is no small matter. Romans chapter 6 says the wages of sin is death. Now, we have a tendency as human beings to sort of, you know, grade sins. You know, you've got those things, and some people in the Roman Catholic Church do this. You've got mortal sins, you've got venial sins, you've got, you know, all of that sort of thing. But the way the New Testament presents this is that all sin is deadly. Back in the 1980s, there was an outbreak of botulism um, as a result of some contaminated soup, canned soup. Now, if you know anything about botulism, you know that it is deadly. So here's the question. How much botulism has to be present in the soup in order for you to be willing to not or to eat it? I mean, if there's only a small amount of botulism, how many of you are willing to to take the risk of, of eating it? See, what you discover is that even the smallest amount has the potential to be deadly. Even the tiniest amount. So you may have somebody who is not as grievous a sinner as somebody else. We might think to ourselves, well, I'm certainly not as bad as a Joseph Stalin. I'm not as bad as an Adolf Hitler or a Benito Mussolini. But the question is not, do you have a lot of the disease, but do you have even a little bit of the disease? Because even the smallest amount is deadly. And there is a sense in which in Western culture, we have lost this sense of the gravity of sin. Some years ago, there was a book that was published by a professor of theology at Calvin College. The book is entitled, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, A Brevery of Sin. And I love the introduction. Uh, The man who wrote it was named Cornelius Planiga, And in this book, this is what he says in the preface. He said, in this book, I am trying to retrieve an old awareness that has slipped and changed in recent decades. The awareness of sin. He said, the awareness of sin used to be our shadow. Christians hated sin, feared it, fled from it, grieved over it. Some of our grandparents agonized over their sins. A man who lost his temper might wonder whether he should still go to Holy Communion. A woman who for years envied her more attractive and intelligent sister might worry that this sin threatened her very salvation. But alas, he says, the shadow has dimmed. Nowadays, the accusation, you have sinned, is often said with a grin and with a tone that signals an inside joke. At one time, this accusation still had the power to jolt people. Catholics lined up to confess their sins to the priest. Protestant preachers rose up to confess our sins. And what's more, they did it regularly. He said, as I was growing up in Western Michigan, I think I heard as many sermons about sin as I did about grace. The assumption in those days seemed to be that you couldn't understand either without understanding both. I remember some years ago going to the Outback Steakhouse, one of the chain restaurants, you've probably been there, and looking at the dessert menu. It's always the first thing that I look at, the dessert menu. And I remember there was this dessert on there called the Sydney's Sinfully Delicious Sunday. It was so good, it was sinful. Now, just think about that for a moment. And by the way, it really was very good. But just think about that for a moment. That's the way we talk about sin today. We might say, oh, Jeff, you old sinner. We say it with a smile. We say it with a lilt in our voice. We make fun of it. But the scripture is very clear. Sin is a deadly, serious matter. And the cross teaches us that. The cross teaches us that the only way for God to deal with sin was to allow his very own son to take on flesh and to die the most humiliating, degrading death imaginable. So the cross teaches us about the gravity of sin. The cross teaches us about the holiness of God. When we hear the holiness of God, when we say the sanctus every Sunday in the liturgy, holy, 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 Lord God almighty, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When we say the sanctus, the holiness of, we speak of the holiness of God, we're speaking about a number of things. We're speaking about, first of all, God's glory, his majesty, his splendor. It's a powerful picture of that in Isaiah chapter 6. But we're also talking about God's righteousness, his purity of character, that he cannot abide by sin. The book of Deuteronomy says, your God is a consuming fire. Do not make any idols for yourself. Why? Because your God is a consuming fire. The way a former generation described this is to describe God as a jealous God. That is to say, God takes seriously the business of being God. He's not indifferent as to how men regard him. He takes seriously the business of being God. So when we speak of the holiness of God, we're talking about his glory, his majesty, but we're also talking about his purity, his righteousness. And because God is righteous, because he is pure, there is this thing called the wrath of God. Now, that's a phrase that has fallen out of favor in the church these days, but you can't avoid it in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 speaks of the wrath of God being poured out against a sinful humanity, which suppresses the truth. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul speaks of the fact that you and I were once children of wrath. That is to say, we were under the judgment of God. 1 John chapter 2 speaks of Jesus Christ being the propitiation of, for our sins. Do you know what that word propitiation means? It means that which turns away wrath. It's as though a freight train is coming at us, and at the last minute, somebody steps between us and that freight train, pushes us out of the way, and takes the punishment upon themselves that we go free. That's the idea here. Now, when we think of the wrath of God, we have a tendency to think of the wrath of God as though we think of human anger, Anger is something that is, you know, beneath a dignified person. It implies a loss of control, flying off the handle. But that's not what the Bible means by wrath. Wrath is more akin to what I would describe as an allergic reaction. My second son, Jackson, when he was a little boy, had an allergy to eggs. And it didn't matter. That, that we, we tried everything. We tried just the yolks. We tried just the whites. It didn't matter. If you even touched his lips with an egg, he would immediately break out in hives. Now, there wasn't anything that he could do about that. It was just part of who he was. When we think of the wrath of God, that's what we're talking about. God's purity, his righteousness, when he comes into contact with that which is corrupt, It's like an allergic reaction. His righteousness consumes it. So sin to God is not a small matter. For God to overlook sin, people often say, well, can't God just overlook sin? To overlook sin means that God ceases to be who he is. He ceases to be God. And that's what the cross teaches us. It teaches us about the wrath of God. It teaches us about the fact that God will bring justice to the world. That's one of the things that we can look forward to. Everything that is broken, everything that is foul, everything that is impure in this world will one day be set right, and the cross is the evidence that God will deal with sin. Those who perpetrate terrible crimes, who are involved in sex traffic, and all those sorts of things, God will one day set those things right, and the cross is the proof that he will do it. And indeed, that he has done it. So God cannot ignore our sin, but he deals with our sin. He deals with sin. Why? Because Jesus Christ becomes a man. He becomes the new Adam. Just as we all fell in the first Adam, Jesus Christ becomes the new Adam. He becomes our representative. And because he is the perfect man, he is able to pay the full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for your sins and for mine. He becomes our representative. The expression that I've sometimes used is whipping boy. In the ancient world, when you had a royal child who would misbehave and they were being trained or taught by a commoner, the commoner had no right to punish the royal child. But the royal child needed to be taught that they had done something wrong. And so they would bring up an innocent child from the class and mete out the punishment that the royal child deserved on that innocent child. And that innocent child was called the whipping boy. What Jesus Christ became for us on the cross was our whipping boy. He took the punishment that you and I deserve, that God's justice might be satisfied, and yet God's mercy might be satisfied. Why? Because God is not only a God of justice, he is also a God of love. And he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. To the end that all that believe in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. That's what the cross teaches us. The cross also reminds us that the sacrifice of Christ is an offense to some. Paul says this. He said, the message of the cross is a stumbling block to Jews and it is foolishness to the Greeks. It was a stumbling block to the Jews. Why? Because the Jews were absolutely convinced that there had to be another way. There had to be another way to save. Just follow the law. Follow all the regulations of the law. There has to be another way. It can't be that God would actually come down and take on human flesh and die. And Paul says the message of the cross is foolishness to the Greeks, stumbling block to the Jews, but a foolishness to the Greeks. Why? Because the Greeks want to say we can't be that bad. We can't be so bad that God would have to die like that. So that's utter foolishness. And yet Paul in Galatians says it is our glory. He says it is a stumbling block to Jews. It is foolishness to Greeks. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the very power of God. So this little section of Philippians teaches us about the divinity of Christ. The willingness of Christ to come down, the condescension of Christ. It teaches us about the centrality of his cross for us men and for our salvation. He offered himself up. But it also teaches us that the, that the one who came down also came up. And on the third day, he was raised. And he ascended to the Father where he sits right now at the right hand of glory. And he will come again. He will come again with glory, with power, with majesty. I wish we could look at all of those verses. You're going to have to look at them on your own. We're almost out of time here. John 17, 1 through 5, Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. But let me just close out with this passage from Revelation chapter 19. That one who came in great humility, who was born in poverty in Bethlehem of Judea, who lived the life of disappointment and temptation and hardship, who mounted the arms of the cross and suffered the curse of the damned for you and for me was on the third day raised again, vindicated. He ascended unto the Father and he will come again. And we will see him for who he really is. In John chapter 17, one of the things that Jesus prayed in the high priestly prayer was that he would receive back the glory that was his before the creation of the world. And that is exactly what we see happening here in this final book of the Bible. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, John has this vision, and this is what he sees. And behold, I saw heaven opened, and a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. He's the one unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, the one from whom no secrets are hid. And on his head are many diadems, many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Harking back to John 1. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with the rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's who Jesus Christ is. And all of that, all of that taught in five brief verses there in Philippians chapter 2. Who though he was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he came down, he made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him that name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this glorious section Of Paul's epistle to the Philippians. There's so much here. This is so deep. This great hymn of kenosis, this self emptying of the second person of the triune Godhead, that you should come down and do this for us. Wesley got it right. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Impress this great truth upon our hearts, Lord, that we may be willing to live for the sake of him who died for us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.